0: So as we've seen, Hebrews is a New Testament book where every concept takes a page from the Old Testament and amplifies it to answer the central question on the front of our bulletins, who is Jesus? And like Genesis, Hebrews begins with creation, but unlike Genesis, the creator becomes a kind of Adam and does this in order to take on Adam's sin and to give his life to to win Adam's life back from the grave. Like Genesis, Hebrews begins with creation and humans and sin and God's plan to rescue us from it, only beggar. And then conceptually, Hebrews moves into the second book of the Old Testament, which is Exodus, and we heard that like Moses, who led the people out of slavery in Egypt and Like Joshua, who led the people into freedom in the promised land, so too is Jesus leading us away from an even bigger kind of slavery and into an even bigger kind of freedom. Old Testament quiz. What did they get in the promised land? What were the things they were told to expect there? Milk, honey, and rest, as Ben said last week. They got rest. So let me ask you this, are you tired? Are you worried? Are you stressed? Do you wake up sleepy, wishing that you'd gone to bed just a little bit earlier the night before? And do you stay up late because there's still a few things yet to be done? Has technology turned your bedroom into an office? Do you long for all of the background noise to go away? Does your watch ding to let you know that your phone is about to ding... ...to let you know your computer is about to ding? Are you surrounded by all of this noise? Do you want it to go away? If your answer to any of those rhetorical questions is yes... ...that is because you have been wired for rest. And this Old Testament idea that rest is good merely points ahead, Hebrews says, to an even bigger form of rest that can only ever be found in Christ Jesus. This week, this very week, there was a tweet on this subject from one of the most influential thinkers of our day, Elmo. And he asked the question, how's everybody doing? Uh, The gist? Not good, it would seem. I think it's fair to say Uh, As of an hour ago, 207 million people have viewed the tweet. Thousands and thousands have responded to it, including the President of the United States. I want to say props to Elmo. got a politician to answer a question. But uh, most people, (laughs) in the afternoon as well, uh, most people got uh, this opportunity, they seized the opportunity to just unload all of their frustration and their terror and, and their grief. They just dumped it on Elmo. Elmo, I'm suffering from existential dread over here, said one user. I'm at my limit. Unaware that ironically, by situating their existential dread in time and space, they'd answer their own question. But, you know, Elmo's only three. He's not going to track with these sorts of ideas. Uh, Another said, every morning, I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday, I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day, every single week for the rest of my life. My favorite was Stephen, who just posted a gif of Elmo in flames with the caption, the world is burning around us, Elmo. Why is it, do you think, that people responded almost as well to Elmo's tweet as they did to Ben's sermon last week? He reaches millions, you know, with his sermons. Why did they respond so well? Well, because it's a subject that strikes a nerve. It was a good sermon, it was a good tweet, but really the subject is, is one that really strikes a chord with us. We crave Sabbath rest, and Christ alone is our true Sabbath rest, and most people do not have Christ, and therefore they're burned out. And all it took to reveal it was a tweet from a fictional three-year-old Muppet. What a thing. That's the story so far. If you missed the first few sermons, you're all caught up. Genesis, Exodus, and Elmo's tweet. Next book of the Bible, Leviticus. Hebrews does what it always does. It takes Leviticus, and it amplifies that as well. So if you're trying to get your head around Hebrews, you need to get your head around Leviticus. And what is Leviticus all about? Well, you remember it's long, yes. And it's all centered around three simple ideas. First, the tabernacle, which became the temple this was the place to get right with God. Second, the sacrificial system, this was the mechanism to get right with God. And third, the priesthood, these are the people who will help you get right with God. Leviticus, temple, sacrifice, and priest, and it's all about getting right and staying right with God. So expect Hebrews... To be about getting right with God and expect temples and sacrifices and priests to feature rather a lot. And when they come up, them to be even bigger. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Do follow along. Uh, Hebrews is densely packed. You'll be significantly helped by having the text open in front of you. Hebrews 5, 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, and remember he's thinking back to Leviticus is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A pretty succinct description of what the high priest did. There were many priests, there was one high priest, and his primary function was to make offerings of atonement in the presence of God for the people of God. To put them right with God. Note here how it refers to Aaron in verse four. He is the original Levitical high priest. He's the first one. You can read all about him in Leviticus chapter eight, and it describes how everything around him had to be consecrated for his use. All of the basins and the bowls and the, the candlesticks and the altars and even the clothes he wore had to be sprinkled with blood and, and dripped with oil in order to consecrate and purify them. And, set them apart for holy use. That was what took place. Leviticus describes this sort of thing in intricate, that's why it's long, meticulous detail, because what this high priest was doing was effectively standing between the people and their God, mediating that relationship with them. He became like the pinch point, like the fort pit tunnel of of traffic where everything flowed through him. It was all about, all focused and mediated through the high priest. And so, of course, it had to be done right. Fascinatingly, even the high priest himself had to be sprinkled and anointed just like everything else. Meaning, for all of his status, he was really just another kind of thing. He was just a utensil. He was a functionary liturgical item just like all of the other things. And so, like all of the other things, he had to be purified because he was not pure to start with. He didn't sort of magic himself onto the scene perfect, but actually he was just a bloke, and he messed up. That is the mindset of Leviticus. You need a person to help you in your walk with God, and they're going to do it in a certain place, in a certain type of way, with certain types of thing temple sacrifice and priest, but they themselves are going to need some help because they're not perfect. They're just like you. And being like you, being imperfect, making mistakes, getting holy, making them again, they're going to have to repeat these sort of things over and over and over and over and over again forever. Now let's see that concept, that idea of of the temple, the priest, the sacrifice, the purification and all of it amplified in Hebrews and then applied to Jesus. First, the positive implications of having a slightly dodgy priest, if we might put it that way. Well, at least verse 2, a flawed human priest with all of his problems can deal gently, this is verse 2, with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, literally hedged or encircled all around with the feebleness of his own soul. Such beautiful language. The one advantage of a high priest being just like everybody else is he gets them. He won't judge lest he be judged himself. He's not going to dare to judge other people for doing the kind of things he's doing. So you don't need to fear going up to see the priest, do you? If your priest was perfect, well, that might be different. If your priest was absolutely perfect, he would find it difficult to sympathize with you. And whenever you came to see him, when you'd made a mistake, he would say, well, what's the matter with you? I'm perfect. Why can't you be perfect? Hmm?" And all he would get is a lecture. But he's not like that. He makes mistakes. And because of this, verse 3... He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. He is a broken mediator at best, but at least that makes him nice. That's the simple idea. Chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest. Great, mega in Greek literally means big. So it's a classic Hebrews technique. You zoom in on an Old Testament character. And then you present Christ as being like that Old Testament character, only bigger. We have a mega high priest in Jesus who has passed through the heavens. That's where he is. He's seated in heaven. Therefore, he is God. Therefore, he is perfect, the uniquely perfect high priest. Uh oh. That means he's going to be grumpy. That means he doesn't get us. That means he's going to be judgmental. That means he's going to be exacting and harsh and has no idea what it's like to be me. And therefore, I should be terrified about getting anywhere near the guy. Not so. Because here's the twist. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Like the high priest of old, Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be fully human because he is fully human. Knowing the weaknesses of our flesh firsthand makes him compassionate and gracious and approachable and kind like the old dude. But unlike the old dude, verse 15, he is yet without sin. I suggest this means he knows more about temptation than we do, that he's experienced every form of temptation, at every level, for every length of time. Like you might say, well, um, I have a problem with, with drinking, so I can sympathize with someone who has a problem with money because, you know, they're kind of similar addictions. But they're not the same, So there's a limit to the sympathy. You might say, well, I have a problem with drinking and so do you. So I have a a great sympathy for you because we're dealing with the same thing. But they're still not the same because we're not the same. Maybe one of you has been doing it for a long time. Maybe one of you has this intense thing. Maybe one of you is a long way through the road to recovery. You're not the same. Your problems are not the same even when they're very similar. Jesus has been tempted by every sin at every level for every length of time. That means he knows it all. But at the same time, with his mind completely unclouded by sin from a perfect vantage point in heaven as well, he's able to comprehend the nature of that sin in in a way that is way more universally comprehensive than any one of us could ever comprehend it. Tempted in every single way, yet never taken in by it. Fully familiar with every little thing we feel, but never ever hedged and circled about by the feebleness of his own soul. Unique. And therefore, he gets us. And being perfectly familiar, and yet perfectly obedient at the same time, and thus bigger than all of the sins put together, verses 8 and 9 says he is uniquely placed to offer something that no high priest of old could ever offer, something bigger, something never offered before. In chapter 2, we heard that he was the perfect sacrifice. Now we gather that he is the perfect priest making the perfect sacrifice. He's both the priest and the sacrifice itself, and both are perfect. And so, verse 9 tells us, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The only one ever Able to offer himself out of perfect choice on our behalf and win. So what? Right? There's a valid question. It's not a sermon without the gospel and it's not a sermon without the so what. And we've had the gospel, but so what? Well, briefly, we've got two so whats. We have two implications of this great high priestly work of Christ. And the first is this, it gives us confidence. You can have confidence because of Christ. Look at verse 16. Let us then, uh, let us therefore, that is to say in light of Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, let us then in light of Christ's sacrifice with confidence draw near to the throne of grace as we sung in our opening hymn that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The principal Implication of Christ's great high priestly sacrifice of himself is that you may have complete confidence without any ambiguity or uncertainty or or doubt whatsoever that whenever we approach the Lord of judgment who weighs our sins and judges them, we approach him through the mediating work of Christ Jesus, always through what he did. And so the judgment that we hitherto approached is suddenly transformed into grace. It is turned into, essentially, the opposite. Why say grace twice in verse 16, do you think? Well, it's not a mistake. Ink and paper were precious commodities. You're not going to write grace twice by mistake. It's written twice because we don't believe it. So we need to say it again. That's why. Grace. Brackets, grace means at our lowest point, absolutely exhausted by the fruitlessness of our own efforts, shamed, and then addicted to the cold comforts of the thing that gave us shame in the first place. So we go back to them and then we feel shamed again. In the midst of that cycle or spiral, if you like, feeling existential dread, we can always find mercy from God. Absolutely, Always, and when we find it, it breaks the chains of Egypt that we still carry around with us today. We're still in Egypt, still weighed down, still defiled, still exhausted, still craving a Sabbath rest. And he sets us free in order to rest. Striving cease. We can be confident of that. And we can be confident because our sins were nailed to the altar of the tree by the only priest who ever sacrificed himself and lived to tell the tale. The only one who was ever good enough. You don't die into judgment and resurrect unless you were better than the sin. Uh, Before the Reformation, I think many people viewed their churches as though they were still temples of a sort and uh, their pastors as though they were still priests and they thought their holy tables were altars and therefore they thought that their communions were still sacrifices and there was an awful lot of fear about what might happen to you in a church. A lot of apprehension about church buildings and what especially would happen to you if you got something wrong. I think medieval Christians were more fearful uh, than many of the Old Testament Jews. And the prayer book's great work, of which this is but a facsimile with a stink bug on it. Look, hello. (laughs) The prayer book's, everywhere. The prayer book's great work, the early prayer book's great work, were to assure a people who were riddled with superstition and weighed down by it, that this was in fact a place to find the assurance of grace and to experience Mercy. That was really the whole intention of that great work. First implication of the gospel is confidence. You can have complete confidence in the work of Christ. And the second is reverence. Now, that might feel a little bit at odds with confidence, right? You can be really confident. You can be super duper confident. You can come skipping into church like a child, even if you are marred by the most egregiously adult of sins. But you must also be reverent at the same time. You know, <laughs> what's going on here? That's a bit strange, is it not? I've been wondering what ChatGPT would make of that conundrum, and I've not asked it actually. But you can do that. Uh, you know, if you said to ChatGPT, which is just a reflection of the culture of the day. Or at least a bit of it. If you said, We are reverent people at Christchurch Fox Chapel, can you draw me, please, a picture of what reverence looks like, please? What are you going to get? You could tell me, that'd be interesting, actually. What do you think uh, we'd be told about reverence? You know, quietness? Um, Best behavior, do you think? Best clothes? Mood lighting? Uh, Very slow, somber, serious kind of movements, a lot of shush, no coffee, Uh, no public displays of joy or or grief or anxiety or concern, absolutely nothing at all like the things that people confess to Elmo. Well, perhaps they confessed to Elmo because they felt they could no longer confess in the church. Have you thought of that? Did you spot how Christ behaved in our gospel reading today? Luke 22. You can turn to it if you like. Shortly before his death, Jesus went away, verse 41, I love this, to his usual place. Isn't that great? He's the Lord of creation. He's got a prayer closet. Like he, did, oh, he goes there all the time. Just love it. I, I, you know, it's just, it's, not, it's, just, it's just the detail is just left there hanging. Like, why, why there? I don't know. It's where he went, to, to be with the Father. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Uh, the cup, as we've seen many times, was symbolic in Scripture of the judgment of God, uh, Luke twenty-two forty-one. And uh, that means he's about to taste the full awfulness of the judgment of God. And, and he chooses it. He chooses to, to drain the dregs of God's wrath. He chooses wrath, sorry. He chooses to, to, to drain it. We might run away, right, from something like that, from judgment. Or compromise, do a deal. I'll tell you what, let's do half judgment and, you know, maybe take, I don't know, Wednesdays off. Like, you know, something like that. But... Uh, he does it fully. He does it perfectly, and it hurts him. In verse 44, it says, "Being in agony," and I love the Greek. It says, "Being in an agony," just feels more emphatic, more definitive. An agony, like it's more specific. That there's something particular about this form of agony. That's I would suggest, unlike anything else we've we've had, it's a big agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat—notes the physical response to the stress, his sweating—became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Of course, this might just be picture language telling us that the sweat fell uh, like blood falls after a, a grave trauma. But uh, there is a condition where under enormous stress, actually the blood vessels can, can reach the surface and dilate so much that they break down and, and you, you bleed all over. It is, it is not quiet. It is not pretty. There is absolutely no reserve in Gethsemane. Do you imagine if people came into church and they broke a sweat at the enormity of, of their own sin? They, 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 they were that honest about what they were going through? that they sweat Uh, and uh, they were feeling an agony so great that they bled on the floor of the church. You know, in some Western churches, if you did that, you'd be asked to leave. A real priest will get a mop and he'd bleed for you. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he is a human. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He beat his fist on the floor, as Pink Floyd say. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Biblical reverence has absolutely nothing at all to do with cultural decorum. It has everything to do with our vulnerability before God. Whatever that looks like. In our culture, all it took for biblical reverence to come pouring out was for someone we trusted as a child to ask us the right question. How's everybody doing? It's all it took. Hebrews reveals to us God has been asking that question since Genesis chapter 1. He's been after us. And he's chased us through the corridors of history, as Simon Ponsonby says. What should we say about... Hebrews 5, then, do you think? Uh, What succinct sentence do I need to tell Bridget so she can post this sermon online? How about this? The confidence we have in Christ Jesus, the great high priest, allows our complete abandonment to the mercy of God, and we call this painful mess reverence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that our confidence in you leads to reverence before you. We pray, God, that this would be a body of Christ and a place where where reverence is the norm. Uh, And that's because confidence is the norm. Lord, thank you in Jesus' name.